Well, I mean, I mean that's, that's, you're right. That's unusual for him. His history has always been to protect the football. Uh, he didn't do that today. You're not going to win football games in this league kicking field goals. We had an opportunity to get points down there and touchdowns, and, and again, we didn't execute. Well, you know, we're going to look at the whole situation with Warrior. When you when you're wanting what we are right now, you, you look at everything, and we'll do that over the bye week. And we understand the process, and we're going through that process right now. Uh, obviously, we're not where we want to be, but we know we're going to get there, and we're going to stay the process. And welcome to another episode of the Turn Up for What Podcast Talking. Your Houston Texans, straight from the Great British Isles. We're halfway there, or it certainly doesn't feel like it, um, for sure. Uh, the laughter in the background uh, is a returning guest, uh, lawyer and sports broadcaster from Sirius XFM. Mr. Mike Meltzer, how are you doing? How are you? Good afternoon. I hope your uh, your day is going well. Yes. Wow, yeah. I think it's... Um, do, you know, do you know the, the, the summary that I had last night watching, or... This, yesterday afternoon watching that I'm recording a bit earlier in the week this week than normal but the um, is it does it feel like this team just doesn't know how bad a, a spot it's in and they continue to bury their head in the sand and when the most important thing about this team is a Sunday it almost at this stage yeah. and for a long time continues to feel like the least that's a that's a great question do they know how bad of a spot they're in I think that's a really good place to start because like my bar is so low when it comes to what Nick Casario says or what David Cully says, especially relative to like, you know, the last couple of years, it's like the bar with Cully is so low that when he admits mistakes, we're like, well, thank God. Unlike Bill O'Brien, we have someone who actually admits mistakes, but you know, I actually, this is how low my bar is that when Nick Casario said that said last week, we're in a rough spot, like we're in a tough spot. I'm, I'm I was actually glad. Cause I'm like, okay, at least he's acknowledging that like, this is not, a good situation, yeah. but you still really wonder, like, do they realize how bad of a situation they're in? Because it almost feels like you would rather press a magic button and not play. Let's see. They are one and eight after Sunday. That's nine. So we've got eight more games of this. You'd almost rather press like a magic button and not play these last eight games as opposed to play them, because I don't know what, what they're going to get out of these last eight games. But it's a great question. Do they know how bad of a situation they're in? I don't know. I think as well, the, I'll go back to the Casario in a second, but just when you look at it, uh, there's only three road games uh, of this last eight. Five at home, you've got three to row stretch. If mm-hmm. people are ever going to voice their opinion in a sort of material way, um, they're going to see it, I think, and hopefully... Uh, as you said, it does feel like it's kind of turning the corner a little bit in terms of some of the noises they're making. But I think, yeah, there's there's going to be a stretch of games here where it's it it you know there could be very you know under ten thousand people in the stands, um, yeah, and uh, and rightly so um, because it's unwatchable at times. But I think there's there's definitely a material point here that in the season that the penny might drop, but it just feels frustrating that it's taken this long. Yeah, I'm curious what the home because they they have one of these situations where when you're a bad football team, you want to have fewer home games or you want to have them like spaced out a little bit because it's a lot to ask people to come like multiple times. So the Jets, Colts, Seahawks stretch from the end of November to December 12th. I'm really curious what some of those games look like. I mean, honestly, like it's probably not going to look much different than uh, the Rams game look, which was ugly and not many. But yeah, people people in Houston have checked out and they're going to voice their displeasure, not really through anger, but more through apathy. And I don't know if that's going to lead to change because I don't know how much change that can, it, there can realistically happen right now, but it is, it is one of the more difficult seasons that I have, you know, witnessed up close and personal, you know, un- at least unlike 2020 and unlike 2017, they are actually playing for a draft pick. So there is that which should help moving forward, but it is not a great situation given, given the fact that I think the bottom line is they don't have any foundational football players. And when you, and this, this, this is what I think makes this season so difficult is when you look at the other bad teams in the league, and this includes, I think almost every bad team in the league, the jets, the Jaguars, uh, the Giants, the Eagles, I guess I'll throw in Washington, even the Lions. 
they are ahead of where the Texans are. Like, I'm not saying in, in the standings in the case of the Lions, but they are ahead in the rebuild of where Houston is. Because with each of those teams, you can point to having either surplus draft picks and or having young players on their team that are interesting to watch to where they're actually a year ahead of where Houston is. I think that's what's ultimately very frustrating about this season is, is the knowledge that it's not going to be good next year. And where those other teams are, like that's where the Houston will be next year to really start this rebuild. Yeah, I said that to a couple of people the last couple of weeks that, yeah, it feels like I think you better get ready for next year to be not all that much better than this because, and, and don't want to go over old ground, I've, I've not been overly complimentary of what Casario's off-season was. I know people love to praise him and it's it's the classic, you know, you you have somebody that does such a bad job for a long time, anything they do that looks competent, um, you know, feels great at the time, but actually when you start to let it settle and um, and some of the, the layers peel back off a little, you're starting to see... Uh, what it you know what it is, and I, I think one of the questions just going back to his comments last week, Mike. I thought one of the questions should have been, looking back at it on hindsight, do you regret going after this four to seven year player experience veteran model because it's got zero payoff? It's not made you competitive. Um, you're taking yep. snaps away from younger guys. Um, you you turned your back on an undrafted free uh, free agent class. You traded away picks. You made bad trades for a number of players. Um, so you know. Okay, it was a bad situation. Everyone said, "Oh, you know, he walked into this, didn't quite know where the field stood." Yeah, but he's not—he's not helped himself. And I think that—that that was one of the questions that I thought should have been asked. And I know he kind of got a bit uncomfortable with the Whitney Merciless one, but I think it was good. I, I, I don't know who raised that question. I couldn't quite work out who the voice was. It's often quiet um, on the on the stream, but yeah, I think that it was good that. And look, people say the media and Houston can sometimes be a bit soft, you know, versus other markets. Um, and I, and I think maybe they're just a bit more polite, I suppose, in the way they ask, ask the questions. But yeah. but it felt like for the first time he was on the on the rack a bit um, and got a bit of a grill in. And I think that was a good thing because he's going to have to, the, yeah. the penny would drop. And do you think all the answers, you know, about like tech companies and all this kind of shit, I just thought it was a bit kind of weak and a bit, well, it, felt, it felt unnecessary. I think he could answer some of these questions a bit more head on. I mean, here's, here's what I was thinking about. So I, those are references that, I don't necessarily mind, although I think that for this audience, I don't think they're necessarily going to work. But what I was thinking about is, like, let's imagine that he cited, what, PayPal nearly buying Pinterest, and he cited Dell, and maybe I'm missing one or two, right? Those are the ones he cited. Do you think that if Dell, if Michael Dell owned an NFL team, that his running back room would look like this? Like knowing nothing about what Michael Dell knows or doesn't know about football, or let's say, let's imagine that like an actual corporation like PayPal owned an NFL team. I can guarantee you just based on what I know about technology companies, they would not have their running back room look like this, where it's like overpaid older guy, like weird Rex Burkhead, uh, Philip Lindsay, who's here, and then Scotty Phillips, who never plays. Like a technology company would never, because they're based in data and analytics, they would look at this and be like, okay, well, this is the one position we got to bring in a bunch of young guys and just kind of see what happens. Like they would never have this running back room. Yeah. Like that's what I kind of find amusing about it. Like I, I can't, I, I look at this and I'm sure other Texans fans watch other games and they're like, well, that running back's good. That running back's useful. Like we saw Deontay Foreman last night make some plays and you're like, how is this running room running room like this? And like they had Mark Ingram before this. So they had another old guy. It's like, it's just, it, it's, it, it, if you're going to model building a football team, like a technology company, I don't think it would look like this is my strong hunch on it. No, yeah, you're right. And I think it's it the, the way in which they've gone about the season, it, it feels like it bears no fruit. And as I said, I don't want to go over too much old ground here, but I think you see, you're, you're starting to see it every Sunday, to the point where the team is competitive um, and there's not many signs of hope, I, I think, for, for this team. And I think, you know, and it's just like giving, you know, snaps to older guys, you know, you've got, say, and this is just one example. I just quickly looked up the practice squad. So you got Travion, uh, Travion Williams, it was, yeah, it was at Texas A&M, um, sitting in the Bengals practice squad, was a productive running back in college. There's a reason why he's not got many snaps. But would you not rather just see somebody like that take a chance on, you know, a number of practice squad guys yes. and get them on the field and see what you get in the, after the bye week? Because at the minute, you're not you're not learning anything having Amendola out there. You're not learning having in Rex Barkhead. Um, David Johnson continues to just just be a waste of space in terms of the cap dollars um, you've got out there, and yeah, it just feels it feels it feels like you're just stuck in the mud. And I think it becomes secondary to the reality of what a football team is meant to be about, and it's meant to be about enjoying Sundays and watching it. But 
it was it was diff- it was a very very difficult game I think yesterday because they're not good and that's clear um, and there's so many parallels you can learn from the Miami kind of journey if you like for the last couple of years who have amassed picks and not really done much with them um, but as you said they're ahead of us because you think you know you would take a number of their players you know would would they get would they start in Houston and yeah, you've probably got a handful of seven or eight guys at a minimum that would all walk, you know, walk in here and start day one. So, as you said, they're yeah, still 100%. ahead. They they've gone backwards in theory after all that investment. But, but yeah, it was a, it was a strange one, Casario doing that. But I think hopefully there's there's a bit of a bit of a final realization from where he is. I think in this team, but I, I, and I don't know if he didn't want to turn up too many trees. I know he talked about bringing people in and bringing like you know new, new fresh blood in and stuff, but. I suppose there's. It feels like you know more so the more he's he's most important hire, I think. And w- one of the guys was watching the game last night said that he just said, "Look, Cully, he's a nice guy, but he's but he's out his depth." And I, I was thinking this, Mike, this morning. Um, could you name three things that David Cully does that he contributes to this football team that he does that independently? I was wondering that. I've been wondering the same thing. Like. Uh, what does he provide to this franchise? Because I was thinking before the season, I'm like, listen, this team's not going to be good, but I am kind of curious about the Texans going to a model that almost no NFL team has, which is the head coach as the CEO. And basically they have outsourced the offense to Tim Kelly and Pep Hamilton, and they've outsourced the defense to Lovey Smith. And they're, and the head coach is basically kind of in charge of like, you know, the locker room, the games, the game management, the decisions, all of that kind of stuff. But like everything, but like as far as the scheme, like David Cully has nothing, I don't think has anything to do with like how often they run versus pass or what plays <laughs> no, they call it. Because I don't think he's that kind of coach. <laughs> and what I was thinking as far as going back to last year is I know it takes two to tango, but why did they not hire Jim Caldwell to do this? Because Jim Caldwell is somebody who has a far better football resume than, than David Cully. He has coached in the Super Bowl as a head coach. He has won a conference. He has been a Super Bowl winning offensive coordinator. He's been a head coach in both the NFL in two places and in college football. And he's just a far more accomplished head coach than David is. It's just, I mean, it's not even close now. And and he was a candidate for this job. Now, I don't know that Jim Caldwell wanted to do what David Cully is going through, but Jim Caldwell is somebody who, if you want a caretaker coach, who can kind of be like a nicer guy, but actually bring something to the table, especially offensively. That's what Jim Caldwell can do. I don't know how to answer your question because like, I don't, I don't like the most valuable resource that we have in life is time. And I don't know that this time is being spent fruitfully. And now you're in this real problem, in my opinion, where now you're starting to get people talking like, Hey, how can David Cully come back after this? Mm, like yeah. if you lose every game the rest of the way or win just like one more game, like how do you sell what's going to happen in 2022? But then we have the flip side of like, okay, if they make a change at head coach, then how is this viewed as any sort of attractive head coaching job? Because they would have hired and gotten rid of a coach in a year. You would have a dominating front office presence in a couple of different ways. And you still don't have a quarterback like who, who you know, who is going to take that job? So I don't I, that that to me is the fascinating question moving forward with this franchise. It's not the, the the Deshaun trade. It is what do they do at head coach? Like what happens here moving forward? I mean, I just don't see what he brings because, you know, you had that uh, fumble. Well, it was maybe an incompletion another day by Jordan Aikens on that final yep. drive. First play, you get the ball back. You maybe a chance to go down the field. Um, you know the likelihood of that. You know, looked very slim based on your offensive output t- until that point uh, yesterday. But the, but that wouldn't have mattered if you hadn't burned all your timeouts. Yes, you know, including well, it, well, really the first one, which was hey, let's instead of taking a delay of game, basically backed up at your own three yard line where you're saving a yard. Instead, they take a timeout. Like you just have to realize there are certain times in a football game you should actually take the delay versus taking the timeout, and that would be one of them. They they had a delay a game, Mike, on a field goal. Yeah, I've ever seen that. I don't think I've ever seen that before in my life. Yeah, like I, I I was I was watching with a few people, and I was like, you know what? I know people criticize some some NFL owners and other places who like uh, are domineering and want to like get involved in football. I'm going to tell you, if I owned an NFL team and that happened, I would have my head coach into the next day and I'd say, okay, 
I want you to walk me through this because you guys missed on a, on like a third and medium, like a, a normal third down. Everyone knew that you were going to kick the field goal because it was a normal situation to kick a field goal. There's no decision to be made. Can you explain to me how your operation led to a delay of game when there was no decision to be made? How did this happen? Like, explain to me on a normal field goal attempt how it's possible to get a delay of game in that situation. And I'd have my coach walk through it because that that that's the kind of process thing that would utterly enrage me. I, I, and I don't see how it's allowed to happen. Not only that, um, I mean, there was a number of penalties stacked up again at terrible times. Uh, I think the worst one was the Rex Burkhead took a took, took a, a dump off in the flat and went right up the sideline um, and they yes. got a penalty. There was a couple of questionable calls they got all day. Um, there was an offensive pass interference, which I wasn't sure about. That I think they got a, a bit unlucky on. Yeah, yeah, the one on Amendola. Yeah, I, I tweeted a clip out of yes. that this morning. I said he must have done that a hundred times when he was in New England and I bet he never got Absolutely. flagged once. But he sort of <laughs> turns his body a bit, looks back to the line of scrimmage and they'll, you know, they'll probably flag you for that. But I think that it's just the, the continual, you know, the fact that it looks like they've got no direction, as you said, I couldn't name three things that he does for this team. Um, he's certainly not involved in the schematics. He's he's there to kind of hold hands and, and, and keep spirits high, I suppose, and, and what was going to be a transition period, despite them, despite a lot of their actions in terms of personnel recruitment, not necessarily, you know, taking that lens. But, you know, when you've got, what, 60 yards of penalties, um, you know, it's just... And then you only had sixty-five yards in the first half of offense alone. You know, it's not a recipe for for to win. But the fact that when he's down there, Mike, uh, fourth and goal doesn't go for it. It was over at that point. Yep. You, you showed your your lack of intent. And it makes me also wonder, like, you know, David Culley's been waiting decades to be a head coach, and he was never going to be a head coach except for this unique situation with this team. And they keep doing these things that are super conservative in order to avoid getting blown out. And I know that they lost by nine. So this was not, or they lost by eight, I should say. This was not a blowout, obviously, but it's like they do the thing to prevent the embarrassments and they typically still have the embarrassment happen anyway. And it just really makes you wonder, like, why would you wait 30 years to be a head coach to coach it like this? Um, it doesn't seem very logical. Yeah, and you think just go down fighting, you know, give it, give it, give it something. And I think as well, you know, it, like for a team that preaches turnovers, 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 and to get five in one game and only put up nine points, it should be impossible. They got it on the the thirty three yard line on the second one, um, and then I think the mili- and then on the the fumble on the punt return that was on the twenty three yard line. And both times you only kick a field goal, and that's just inexcusable, I think. And it goes back to lack of run game. Um, it goes back to lack of execution, um, but when when you when you are inept on on the on the offensive side of the ball, even when you get you know free free sixes effectively, um, you've not got much chance, I suppose. And and I think you know you can get you can get tied up in the game. The, you know they could have uh, they could have gone for it on fourth and scored, not given up that um, that terrible interception just before the half, and you know. It's a close game. Yeah, terrible. Yeah, very close game at that point. But on that interception, Mike, Tyrod Taylor, I thought his body language was off all day. Um, that interception was nonchalant at best. Um, he just mm-hmm. lobbed it out. Like, the, the, the amount of blitzes that came, that he just lobbed it up in the air. Um, there, there was one on the third down, I think in the third quarter when they were driving, Nico Collins cuts in an in route. Um, there's two. What he he's the wide receiver uh, loan loan to the near side. Um, so you think if you're you know you're going to go you you go where their less bodies are if you're just going to th- throw up there and make a play. Yeah. And he, he throws it the opposite side. Um, I just I just thought he did. I thought he looked disinterested. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if there's something there. But I I, I thought I mean, interception interceptions aside, I just thought how he created them. Um, and what what position he put this team in. I think it was a, a big departure from from early, what we saw you know in the first six quarters prior to the hamstring injury. Yeah, and I think the first six quarters were probably unsustainable realistically based on Tyrod's career. But I mean, this was this was probably this might have been the worst game of his career, honestly. Like, and you, especially you think about that that string of uh, possessions end of the first half into the second quarter. It was the horrific interception that you mentioned, nonchalant, something that you would feel was awful. That would have been an awful play for a rookie, and that was a play that he made. Then the interception, first play of the uh, of the third quarter or first possession of the third quarter, that little crossing route that was tipped. And then he misses Amendola on what would have been a wide open yeah, touchdown yeah. for like 50 yards, essentially. I'm not going to blame the coaches for that. That's on Tyrod. Um, 
And I was looking at, you know, some of the numbers. His QBR was 13.1. Davis Mills was lower than that uh, twice, once against uh, the Rams and once against uh, the Bills. But put it this way, I I had no problem with them starting Tyrod in this game. I I, I could have seen it either way. I could have seen Mills, then bye week, then go back to Tyrod. I, I could have seen it both ways. But the performance that you saw yesterday, like Davis Mills could have done the same thing. He could have put up nine points on the road. I mean, you put up nine points in a game that you turn the other team over five times. That basically never happens in the NFL. Like even bad teams, uh, historically, when they get five turnovers, they're going to put up at least a couple of touchdowns just based on that. So, yeah, it was a I like I don't expect this to be that bad moving forward. But to your point about the, the blitz, yes, like. It seemed like, and Cully was asked about the blitz after the game, like, what did they have a plan? And he said they had a plan. But you kind of wonder, like, do they ever have a plan B? Or do they just assume that, like, the plan A always has to work? Otherwise, we're just going to keep banging our heads against the wall. But, yes, you see in football, whether you're watching the NFL, college, whatever, when team, when they're all out blitzes, sometimes you'll hit on plays where you just kind of heave the ball up and you know there's a receiver in the area. But a lot of times blitzes are beaten by, you know, quick hitting routes, whether over the middle or along the boundary. And they never seem to have any of those plays. And it's like you have a veteran quarterback, you have veteran receivers. I know the offensive line is not in good shape right now, but like it has to look better against the blitz. They had to know coming into this game, they had to have some sense that Miami was going to be aggressive defensively. And schematically, they seem to have no answer for basically four quarters against the blitz. Yeah, this has been a, and this this is another, and again, it goes back to the, the the feeling of familiarity in a bad way about you know this this coaching staff. I think you know in the, in the carryover of Tim Kelly because this offense has historically been terrible about picking up blitz, particularly secondary third level blitzes that come in. Um, you know, and and I don't see for the life of me why you know. And look, I'm not you know classically trained. I picked up this game you know later in life, but you know if you're if you're hot and the DB runs past you. Is going to attack your quarterback. How about you just break off your route and stand in the open space and get an easy completion? Yeah, and you know, and it never happened all day. And again, there was another one where I couldn't tell if it was Chris Moore in the slot or Amendola, um, and he did break off his route, but Tyro didn't even look at him. He was looking out wide, and he tried to, again over focus on Brandon Cook. So it just felt like such an easy way to play them. There was a couple of times where they um, they caught them. I mean, don't get me wrong, there was a few drops. Brevin Jordan dropped one. Chris Conley dropped one in the second Conley, quarter. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a couple of bad, you know, bad there, a couple of misses from him. So, you know, like on another day, could you have had one or two plays go your way? Not some bad calls and you might have got something out of the game quite possibly. Yeah, but it it, um, it felt like when, you know, a, a team that was down and out, both teams on a seven game losing streak. And uh, that's the kind of performance you put in against a team like that. I think it, it says a lot about the the team, the, the, the state of the, the team uh, and, where, and, you know, and, and how much improvement they've got to make because, there's not many guys, Mike, as you said earlier on foundational pieces that you can take forward. Yeah. I just, I keep framing it this way. I've talked to a couple of people just doing different media platforms last week. And the next time the Texans play an important football game, like a game that actually matters, I think it's much more likely to be 2023 than 2022. I think about 22 starters, right? Every team has 22 starters. And in the salary cap era, it's unrealistic to have, you know, 22 stars. Obviously you're going to have, Ideally, you know, five to seven stars, a bunch of above average players, and that's how you kind of win, right? And I think about the 22 eventual starters the Texans need to have. We are two plus months into the season, and I feel like they have arguably subtracted two guys off of that possible future 22, one being Justin Reed because of free agency, one being Titus Howard because they idiotically moved him to left guard. And you've only added possibly one guy in John Grenard, who's had a pretty nice season. But like I'm, I'm thinking at, at some point, I don't know if it's this offseason. I don't know. What I honestly don't know what their plan is, but like, I don't know that Laramie Tunsil is going to be here for a long time. And so I think they arguably have one player for that eventual 22 when they play a football game that actually matters. And the problem with that is it almost feels like, yes, they will have more picks in this upcoming draft than most teams have, because I think a Watson trade gets done before the April draft and they'll have more picks, but it almost feels like they need to have like three full drafts just to kind of stabilize where this roster is. And I'm not even talking about quarterback, which is obviously by far the most important position. But like, you know, like you think about some of these teams that are disappointed, like, you know, Carolina's got four wins. Denver's got five wins after they beat 
the Giants on Sunday. Like, and those are teams that they're like suffering with the, with the quarterback situation for various reasons. But like, you look across the board, like Carolina's roster or Denver's roster, like they got players. I was like, they got they have foundational pieces, like skill guys, defensive players. The Texans are multiple drafts from being where those teams are. I, like, I don't want to scare people, but. <laughs> That's just, I, like, I don't think they have any foundational players that you can truly build around. No. Well, yeah, I think that's it. I think that's the issue because you've got Tunzel who you will need to make him the highest paid player again to keep him. Um, or or yes. he'll go somewhere else and find that and probably yep. get it. Um, and, uh, and and that was the, the maybe just pivot onto the, the, the trade deadline stuff because the, 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 the comment was that Brandon Cooks is a guy you want to build around. And I think, well, he's been in the league for what, eight or nine seasons now. He's got a concussion history. Um, by the time we are good, it'll not matter if he's on your team or not. So I don't really see how they build it, and that goes back to that point of do they know what kind of spot they're in? Um, but did the you know the Casario's kind of odd comments and and kind of handling of of some of the pressure perhaps? But but in terms of his actual actions, obviously Mark Ingram went out. Um, Charles Amene who goes for a twenty three fifth. Um, and it was a reasonably quiet trade deadline, but again with the Bradley Roby thing, they did you know they, they are looking to the future. Um, do you, do you think that you know? And I think one actually a really kind of small silver line I thought playing a guy like Jimmy Morrissey at center, you know, yeah. great because I, well, let's see what you've got, you know. Yes, I, I was going to say like I think because we keep coming out to the question, do they know? what kind of situation they're in. And I think you you see it with certain things. You see it with the Ingram thing. You see it with, I think, especially the Bradley Roby trade. Like, if you're a team that's truly trying to compete, you're not trading a starting cornerback right before the season. Like, that's not something a team does. And I think this team made, I think Nick made the right decision in trading Bradley Roby. Um, you see little things like the Morrissey thing, finally releasing Vernon Hargraves. Um, but it's kind of like, it's like halfway. They'll do that, but then they're still not, it feels like getting enough snaps to Nico Collins, to Brevin Jordan. Like, I don't even understand what the point of Jordan Akins is yeah. at this point. I know they have to have him out there because Farrell Brown's hurt, but like like, like Jordan Akins at this point, it's like, dude, you're, you're 29, like enough already. Like I, I like I, I can't, like nothing against Jordan Akins, but it's like, what, what are we doing here? But you're seeing little things that they're recognizing, like they need to start playing some young players, but it's just not, it's like more 40% or 50% versus like 90%, like some of these other teams are doing who are not good. So you, you like, I think they have an idea that they need to start playing younger players, but they're not like fully getting all the way there, basically. Yeah, and I think you, you've maybe found some guys like in Gruger Hill. I thought Jordan Jenkins, I mean, he can't sit at the edge, but he was decent in pass, um, pass rush yesterday. He got a sack at yep. TFL, pretty emotional after the uh, in the press conference. So, you know, he said he was playing with a different mentality and it showed. I thought Jaleel Johnson's been good. Um, Roy Lopez has been a big, you know, a big a big plus and Malik Collins is, is, is really kind of started to come into some form. So there is small pieces here, but again, I think, as you said, don't want to scare people, but you know, these guys are secondary tertiary guys at their position on a good team, yeah. you know, and I think that's what you got to remember. I would say the defensive line is the one aspect of this team. I'm not going to say it's good because yeah. I don't think it's good relative to NFL standards, but it's like, it's like the one sort of like NFL caliber unit that they actually have. Mm -hmm. Like you look at some guys and you're like, okay, like these guys can make some plays. They can have some good games. Malik Collins might be a keeper. Like that's the one unit that I think can be competitive on, you know, a week in week out basis. Yeah. So I, I think we agree on and that. What, where do you stand with uh, giving Mills snaps? Cause I'm kind of think we've kind of, there's a limit to what you're going to get of them this year in this situation, but um, yeah. it felt like at times more watchable. The stat box appeared to be more watchable, but the points, the output, the field position all didn't match up. But how yeah. <laughs> how would you sort of manage it between now and the the end? You know, the end of the end of the season. I, I would do. I, I'm in a, It's a great question. I normally I, I would have a very strong opinion on this. I I'm okay with them playing. You know, okay. Let's see here. So I'm going to look at the schedule and kind of so. I, I am fine doing, I'm, I don't have a strong opinion either way, other than to say, we've got to see some more Davis Mills in the second half of the season. Like you there, I don't think it's realistic to start Tyrod Taylor and play him every snap for the last eight games. That makes no sense given where this team is. Uh, I'm guessing they'll, they'll start Tyrod off the bye and just kind of see how it goes. 
but we need to see more Davis Mills to get a better sample size. I agree with you that given the state of the roster, it, it puts them in a tough spot, especially with this offensive line. But I also think like just for the future, they have to install game plans. I know it's not going to be Rogers or Mahomes and they're not going to air it out like that, but you look at the Rams game and I understand, I get that what happened in the fourth quarter was them playing backups and it, it turns into a preseason game, but he looks more like a normal NFL quarterback in that fourth quarter, as far as what they're trying to do, throwing the ball down the field, you know, hitting some nice plays that aren't just necessarily there immediately. And if and when they play Davis Mills, they have to attempt to run more of an NFL actual offense and throw the ball down the field because some of the game plans, it feels like it, it almost doesn't matter whether he's out there or not because you can't learn anything from him. So that to me, again, you know, I, I understand that they're not going to like open the offense wide up because he's a rookie. He had famously 11 college starts, but when he is eventually back out there, like you have to run the, the semblance of a normal NFL passing attack to truly see what you have in him. And that's another one, by the way, that, you know, the coach fascinates me, fascinates me, me moving forward. I'm fascinated by what they do at quarterback moving forward, because I actually think there's a, there's a chance. It's not the most likely scenario, but there is a chance that these two guys are just the ones back here next year. Like oh, yeah, there's yeah. a chance of, that. I, know, I think it's, it's pretty highly likely. Um, unless uh, it's a well-trodden theory now, but Unless uh, Jimmy Garoppolo gets released in the, uh, yeah, which he will, yeah. which he will, and it well, I, I suppose yeah. it's a question of Garoppolo as to Jacob. What's his ambition? Does he want to come here and be a placeholder um, again, or does he want to go somewhere that will start? But I don't know how many options he'll have, and he's got exactly yeah, he's got those links. I think you're right um, on that. I thought that, that just on that play calling aspect, I could not believe when they threw that screen on third down on that first drive. Uh, on third and he was you've seen it so many times recently. and then the irony yes. of it was Tyrod that threw the ball in the dirt rather than Davis so yeah it was almost like watching the same script just with slightly different actors and it didn't really necessarily fill you with any confidence I think Tim Kelly's regressed as well and I think that's that's the big issue when it goes back to the coaching staff because you know we're talking about yep. future years and restocking and three but there's a balance to be had for Caseri when I think this is probably the the second biggest thing apart from Neil and the Watson trade is when do you change coaching staff? Because there's no point bringing in guys that fit a certain scheme. That you know, you know, a corner, a cover two corner is very different to a guy who's going to play in a three-four press man's kind of system. Um, and yep. so they've got to be really careful of that because if you expend these these picks and, and spend this capital, and then all of a sudden when you pivot to a new coaching staff, and they might not necessarily fit. You know, if you don't want to be in the CG Henderson with the Jags getting shipped out, you know, after being the ninth overall pick. Um, mm-hmm. Like a year later for a third, you don't want to be in that position because then you you shot your shot by that point, and uh, and you're you're left empty-handed. So I think that's that's for me. That's probably the second biggest kind of issue that that Casario's got to um, attack really, and kind of that and that kind of grand scale of, of of his plan for the next three four years. Yeah, I, w- I was talking to somebody last night, and we were kind of wondering. Okay, let's say let's say David Culley just stepped away after this season and just went to retire and you know co- coach high school football in Tennessee or something then I almost wonder if the New England thing and the Casario, maybe even the East to be part of it is so like ingrained in what they want to do that. Like, even though it would have a very bad reception, maybe their best chance of ultimate success here is bringing in a Josh McDaniels or bring in a Gerard Mayo or bring in someone like Brian Dayball who knows Nick Casario because like, because then there would at least be sort of like a yin and yang between the front office and the coaching staff. And they would be at least on the same page. Maybe it's the wrong page, but at least they'd be on the same page because those guys know each other. Because otherwise, if we're talking about, you know, hot shot assistant coach or somebody who's thinking about getting a head coaching job this upcoming offseason, I would look at the Texan situation and even beyond the roster, the Deshaun Watson situation, how long is it's going to take me to build like I want to I want to hire my own coaching staff. I don't want to go to a place where I get the job and they're like, hey, um, Lovey Smith is in that office over there. He's going to be your defensive coordinator. You know, like I, I wouldn't want that if I was somebody who was a hotshot assistant, whereas somebody like Josh McDaniels, I'm guessing that even without like discussing it, they're going to have the same kind of coaches in mind. So that assistant thing is not going to be as much of an issue. So I don't, I don't know that if my point is like directly answering yours, mm-hmm. but it's something I've been thinking about as far as the future. Like 
if Casario is going to do this where it's pretty clear the front office has a pretty big say in who the assistant coaches are, that even though it's going to drive the fan base crazy, they might be you know better off with a with a pa- another Patriot head coach uh, so that at least the organization internally is on the same page. Yeah, I mean, I think, I suppose, it's, the bar has been set so low in so many aspects with this organization. Yes. And it, well, that's, the only way he's yes, up, but yes. I thought that what summed up David Cully in a sense, he couldn't re- he couldn't recite a record yesterday. He went, "We're four and something." That was what he said. Oh, sorry, one and something. <laughs> yeah. uh, one and something. And yeah. um, <laughs> and I thought, well, there you go. You know, you can't re- you, you can't recall plays that happened thirty minutes ago that you can watch on a tablet. I've never seen him hold a tablet on the sideline any time. I'm not to say he yeah. hasn't, but I've never <laughs> seen him do it. Um, he, he you know he he obviously gets situations wrong. Panics, calls times out. Um, he corrects himself in front of the media, which you know is great. But I think, yeah, the the, the one in something I think kind of summed it up really because we're we're um, we're a head coach short of a football team at, at this stage, and whether that's yeah. to, to tread water for the time being. But I suppose the yeah, I suppose if you get the first or the second overall pick, that is attractive for a new head coach. Um, but looking at Detroit's um, schedule, Mike. They're at Steelers, yep. at Browns, they've got Chicago, Vikings, at Denver, at Arizona, Atlanta, Seattle, and the Packers. You know, unless the you know, unless Green Bay are, you know, through you know, through to the comfortably with a the number one seed, which there's only one seed in this revised playoff. Yeah, only one, yeah. yeah. Um I don't think I mean, they yeah, might have won a game. It, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously the, the, the Bears game is one that they can win. I mean, Minnesota's very up and down. Like, do I think the Lions are going to win a game? I think they probably win a game among, you know, these last nine. But, you know, I don't know if they're going to win two games. And, and and to be fair, like, I think this is a draft that it's pretty clear two months into the college season that, like, there's really, I, I don't think, I don't see there's, I don't see how a quarterback's going to go in the top three. Like, I just, I don't know who that would be. I, I just, I can't see that. So you're, you're jockeying among, you know, the, the top pass rushers, the top offensive linemen, the safeties, the cornerbacks. And so I, I'm not so much worried about the number one versus number two. You'd rather have number one, obviously, because you'd be able to have your selection of players. Um, but yeah, I think there it's much more likely at this point that Houston is picking two, three, or four. I think it's yeah, I think it's more likely they're picking two, three, and four versus one. I, that's the way I'd, I'd put yeah, it. Yeah, I think so because I mean, there's going to be one game that you you win at some point. You, you have no justification for it. It's just the way it, it happens. Uh, you got yes. you got that Jets game in there. You never know where they'll be at that point. But mm-hmm. you know, they've had some good. They've had a couple of wins more than us. So um, and beat some okay teams. So yeah, you just never know. We, we could we could burn out um, on these on this last stretch, and I think that's the. That's that's the interesting point. If we completely flame out the rest of the season, does that engender enough change? Will that or will that speed yeah. up the the winds of change in the front office? And um, I think that's one Casero. I don't know if he knows. It. If you were to ask him that, and he was you know sitting with us right now, do you think he'd be able to answer that question? Truthfully, <sighs> off the record, sort of thing. Yeah. Well, well, what what's the exact question? Give me the exact question. If you win one game this season, do you need to make a change of coaching staff? It's a good question because I, I would want to know why they ended up with Cully in the first place. And because I, I think the easy part is the Cully part. Like David Cully is not going to be the coach here when they play important football games. I think it would be stunning if it were if that were the case, that if he was coaching actual games that mattered here, just based on timeline, age, all of that. But I go back to, you know, how attractive of a job would this be? Which, by the way, was not a conversation when we talked about previous Texans coaching regimes like Gary Kubiak or, or Bill O'Brien. Um, I think that this was a very attractive job for a long time. When they hired Gary Kubiak in 2006, Gary Kubiak had been a Super Bowl winning offensive coordinator multiple times over who had turned down other head coaching jobs. Yeah. And I know Gary's from Houston, but he turned down other jobs and that was the job that he picked. Bill O'Brien, no matter what happened afterwards, was arguably the top coaching candidate on the market when they got him in late 2013, early 2014, they're just nearly not at that place. So what I'd wonder is like, yeah, I think Nick could say, yeah, we'd probably be better off as from a coaching standpoint, from a selling to the fan standpoint, having a new head coach moving forward. But like, does Nick think that this is an attractive head coaching job? I think it's more attractive, attractive than it was last year uh, because the Deshaun stuff was still impending at that point. And now it's kind of a fate accompli like, there's going to be a trade. It's just a question of how much they get for him. Um, 
But I just don't know how attractive of a job this is going to be. That that's I, I'd love to hear his thoughts on that. Obviously, you're never going to hear it because Cully's still the head coach. Yeah, yeah, it's a tough one. I I saw the I think it was last week, and it cut to. Well, it was interesting actually when it cut when the, on Sunday when it cut to the broadcast. George Godsey playing calls a guy who O'Brien you know gave him a short leash, got rid of him, took the play call off him, and there he is. Kind of yeah, uh, there he masterminding was. a <laughs> masterminding a, a downfall. Um, but uh, yeah, when it when it cut to Joe Brady the other week there, and again this is probably oversimplification, um, and nothing to do with his choice, but he's sitting there and he's got a big big necklace on with a cross on it hanging out over his jersey, and I thought, and there was a lot of rumours at the time that Easterby was enamoured with him, um, and he was you know they spoke to him prior to hiring Casario. Um, and it, I don't know, but I mean, if you're a young guy like him, would you want to take this job? And I think that's the thing. You've got a lot to lose because you only get a couple of goals at it. You know, GM, you maybe get yes. one goal. Head coach, you get a couple. But um, but yeah, would, would he take it? Because as you said, I don't think there's many many guys that you're going to be able to pick up in, in the top of the draft that's going to change your fortunes dramatically. Yeah, I, I think I think it's it's a hard it's a hard place to be. Um, it's a really hard place to be, and like. You've kind of hinted at it, like you know, if they flame out, does it really create a whole lot of change? But but again, like I just think the problem that you have now is you have you you already hired your general manager, um, who I think is a more powerful GM than a lot of GMs around the NFL. So you have a different model. Uh, you still have the Easterby thing uh, that looms over the franchise, and it's like last year was the time for change. Last year was the time for the big changes, and this organization seems to have this thought that, well, Deshaun Watson asked for a change. He got a change. We have a new GM. We have a new head coach, but that just ignores the reality of Easterby still being here and his influence still pervading the organization, and like, I just don't know how they you know, solve that part of it. I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by it because it's such a bizarre situation, um, and there's part of me that wants to like hit a button and flash and flash forward to the end of the season just to see like what this is going to look like. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I'm really interested to see what this product looks like on the field, the last eight games and what happens decision wise coming out of this season. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what to expect. Yeah, and I, I think another question that should have been asked to Kazarian and wasn't, and I've seen people mention this um, before, but you know, Nick is a, you know, first time general manager. When you see the stands as empty as they are at a home game on a Sunday, what is you know what what is, how does that make you reflect as a front office in terms of what what the position of this team and the products on the field right now? Something direct like that. I agree. I think that's a question that, that needs to be asked. I'm curious what what Cal thinks of that. And I'm also what troubles me. I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm going to pull up the transcript here from Casario last week. But I find something very interesting, uh, which is. Remember when Cal last January talked about the accusations of the Patriot way Mm -hmm. and or Patriot South, I should say. And he was basically like, we're we're not Patriot South. What troubles me about that is that one, like it's one thing to be Patriot South. Like I'd actually you know what? I would respect it if if uh, Cal McNair was like, you know what? We are Patriot South. We think the New England Patriots have been the best organization in the NFL for 20 years. We want to model what they do. That's why I, hi- I hired Nick Casario. We think there's a formula for why they, why they got six Super Bowls. We're going to try to follow that formula. And I think this is the best thing for my franchise because at least you're putting a stake in the ground. That's, I, would, I think that's acceptable. I think the other thing that's acceptable is to completely ignore it, to say, I'm going to run my franchise however I want, and I'm not going to care about what people say, fans, media about what they think I'm modeling or, or what I think I'm not. I don't know if it's so much the Patriot way, but you know, Bob McNair really liked Nick Casario too. People, people forget that. Like Bob also was interested in hiring Nick, but this is way before the, the 2019 stuff. So this has been a, a pursuit they wanted for a while. And so I'd be fine if Cal didn't address the Patriots South stuff. And I bring that up because in Casario's opening statement, like the long opening statement, he brought up uh, the culture part. And he said, I, he, you know, he kind of wrapped up what he was saying. He's like, I would say that's just a couple of things in terms of where we are. I'm sure you'll have some questions. I think it's probably important to put this out here a little bit, but I, but I don't know if I've ever really stated it or said it. But again, what are we trying to build here in terms of our program? I think everybody kind of gets caught up in culture. Like, what does that exactly mean? 
I think there are a lot of different way, uh, definitions of how that's interpreted. Culture is about habits and about action. It's about work. That's what culture is about. It's about being being able to build up a series of habits, a series of actions. And he, he kind of goes on, yada, yada, yada. What I find interesting, again, opening statements. Nick is not asked, what is your culture or how is the culture being built right now? He's addressing it in his opening statement. And he gives a lot of like corporate speak about it. And he brings it up unsolicited, which means they know in that building that their culture is under question. Like they know that in the newspaper, on the sports talk radio stations, in the media with the fan base, that their culture is under question. But they give these mealy mouth answers about it, not pointing to anything specific. And yet they are, I guess I'll say, sensitive enough to realize that their culture is being questioned such that the general manager brings it up without being asked at his in-season news conference. I find that to be interesting. Does that make sense? Oh, no. I mean, I think the P- obviously Omar or whoever was in the PR team have already briefed him and just said, look, yes. this is what's being talked about. You know, what are the things that people are talking about right now? Um and one of them is this because I suppose he has to. I mean, if you if you're gonna if you're gonna succeed and build confidence, build trust in people's eyes, I suppose you've got to tackle the pro- problems one by one. And he probably said, "What's the you know, what are the things that people are saying about us right now?" And, and I know he also referenced on on uh, unasked again about some of the reporting about the Watson situation. You know, and he said, you know, he sort of, he sort of laughed as he talked about it. Um, so like he's obviously aware, and I think when you're when you're down and out. As this team is, um, and it could you could get further down <laughs> um, at some point in yep. these last sort of, uh, eight games, but when you're when you're in that position, I suppose you need an awareness, and I think he's obviously trying to to take that into account. But yeah, I think he's obviously he obviously knows, and and look, the biggest thing he could do is just get rid of Easterby. He won't. I I I, but, I, yeah. I agree. I mean, I, I I hate to keep going back to that, but like. If you told me that, you know, Jack Easterby was fired or resigned tomorrow, I think there would be such a a, a pressure release, like yeah. a valve release yeah. among the fan base yeah. that it would be like, all right, our situation's not good right now, but at least we can look at things moving forward and things are like more normal. Like they're bad normal, but it's like, all right, you have a GM, you have a coach, we'll figure out what to do with both, especially the head coach. But at least we don't have this, you know, third party who's in the building who people are going to point to when things go badly with the roster, with football decisions, and we could just kind of move forward. But until and if that happens, we're, you're just in this perpetual state of, of wondering, going back to the first question on the top here, you know, do they know how bad of a situation they are truly in? Like we are going to constantly be having that question and figure out based on their actions this upcoming off season whether they truly know what kind of situation they're in. And if you want to hide them, hide them, but don't have them crouched out behind the head coach on a last minute field goal, and he's getting picked <laughs> up on the broadcast. You see, I, I see him in the all twenty two every week, running up and down the sideline with whatever he's whatever laminated sheet he's got in his hand, uh, whatever <laughs> that details. So I'd love to see it <laughs> if I'm honest with you. Um, but yeah, I think that's the big thing. And as you said, it's all ground. But when you're just stuck in this perpetual nothingness of of uh, complete you know, you know drudgery every week, it's tough to to, to not point to these things because they're easy fixes. Um, as you said, we, we need to move on. Obviously, the Watson thing, Mike. From a legal point of view, you know there was a lot of kind of, and around the trade deadline as well. How did you sort of piece all those various reports together? And and and, and they talked about they've got forty four hours of of uh, or depositions. depositions, yeah, in. Um, in, in February. Um, how, how do you see it playing out just from a kind of purely illegal aspect? So I think from a legal aspect, when it comes to settling cases, I, people should know, like, and I think this has been established that the court system in Harris County, where the Texans play, is really backed up as far as cases. And so if you file a lawsuit, let's say today against somebody in civil court, in order to take that to trial, it's going to take two to three years. I, I don't think people realize that. And I actually haven't tweeted that, so I'm gonna I'm gonna find the exact date of the first trial because I don't remember when it is. But I think <laughs> like Pro Football Talk, all these other entities, they think that like, oh, you know, Deshaun's gonna sit for his deposition, discovery will happen, it's it's happening now, and they'll have a trial in like late spring or summer. Like that's not going to happen. If Deshaun Watson's gonna take any of these things to trial, any of these cases, that's gonna be in a couple of years. And that's not an exaggeration. So there is a real incentive for him to settle. What I was puzzled about is 
just kind of the timeline and the process, us getting reports that Stephen Ross was able to talk to Deshaun right before the deadline. I don't know why that wouldn't have happened months ago or at some point in the offseason or training camp, because we know Miami's always been the team. That's a team that Deshaun wants to go to, that the one team that we know that he's willing to waive his no trade clause. So why would that happen so quickly before uh, the trade deadline? Then we hear reports to the extent that Chris Greer, Miami's GM, is having to answer questions about whether the Miami Dolphins want non-disclosure agreements as part of Deshaun's hypothetical settlement agreements, which I think is wildly uh, unethical for a football team to get involved into that sort of situation. I, I think I think it's perfectly reasonable for a team like Miami, a team that's interested in trading for Deshaun, to tell his camp. I'm, I'm sure they don't want this like in any sort of uh, documented way, but I think it's fine for them to want those cases settled. I think that's a reasonable thing to say. It's like, hey, we want to trade for you, settle these cases. I think that's that's perfectly reasonable as far as what their business and football interests are. I think that's a very reasonable stance, in my humble opinion. Um, but deadlines spur actions. We always hear about that. If you're the accusers, the plaintiffs in these cases, and you know that the defendant you know, has a big career thing happening with this trade deadline. Well, it makes it harder. It makes it more incentivized to settle from Deshaun's side. But then it's like, you know, if you are the accusers, you can ask for a whole lot more leading up until the trade deadline. And, and so I, the, the process to me is, is kind of is kind of strange here. Um, I think it's actually more likely to reach settlement when there's not a whole lot going on, like the next couple of months where nothing can really happen. And another point I'd make is, as far as the deposition, so if you sue somebody in civil court, in Texas, typically you, you'll get six hours to depose them. Well, here we have 22 cases. And so technically that would be whatever 22 times six is. Uh, and so we found out last week it's going to be 44 hours, which was obviously an agreement by the parties that like, we're not going to spend six hours on every single case. We're going to spend like two. Those That deposition would be painful for Watson to go through because 44 hours, that's going to be basically a week, right? It's going to be maybe a little bit longer than a week of him sitting down, being under oath, uh, being grilled by Tony Busby. That is not, or at least it should not be, that is not a public process. When Deshaun Watson's deposed, unless somebody leaks it, which is a possibility given who he is um, as far as a famous person, but like that deposition transcript should only be shared between the parties, the accusers, the defendants side as well. That it's not like you're going to be able to go into the case and then there's going to be a record of the transcript. That's not the way that works. So it is a private process, but there is a chance that he is running that that deposition at some point, or maybe maybe relevant parts of that deposition get leaked. Um, but I tend to think that a settlement is more likely when there's not a lot going on as opposed to last week where it's like this seeming scramble on the Texan side, the Miami side, you have Steven Ross involved. I just, I, I don't have a clear read. I know I'm giving too long of an answer here, but I don't have a clear read on what the process was because it seems, it seems on the outside to be pretty haphazard uh, based on the reports that we were getting. Well, I think you've, I think it's such an unprecedented story of a guy that age of the stage of his career one out a team that, you know, just sent him a contract. So everything about it is unique. So therefore I get them, the media aspect of it, but we need to move on. It was the right thing to do not to trade him. I'm assuming the late, Agreed. The I'm assuming the late thing with the Stephen Ross was literally just to try and get them to say, right, you know, okay, we'll give you whatever we were looking for. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't be surprised because I mean, and I've seen so much, Kind of mis, you know, is mis uh, misinterpreted stuff about negotiation and leverage and all this stuff. You know, I'm sick of reading it, seeing it, hearing about it, talking about it. But um, from from the legal point of view, I'm a right and saying, Mike, that it's a civil court. Therefore, the only penalty can be fiscal. Um, and and is there any, in your experience, is there any kind of benefits to to doing that now versus you know going to trial from from Watson's own cost point of view to to the likely settlement as well or what what do you how do you how do you sort of view that so the the, the hard thing about these cases and I try to I I always try to talk about them in, in a serious way because there are serious allegations yeah, yeah. um there are serious things that he he's being accused of and I think there are some in the media who have discussed them in in unfortunately in my opinion irresponsible or sort of frivolous way. Um, the hard thing about these kind of cases is in civil cases, there are really two parts of a civil case. There's liability, which is I'm accusing you of something. Are you liable for it? And the second part is damages. 
if I am liable, how much, like what damage did I cause? Uh, in this case, the damage is just based on the allegations are kind of like, it's hard to really measure in, in any kind of specific way. Whereas like, if I breach my fiduciary duty to you in a company, we can kind of like go through some numbers, bring in financial experts and figure out what that looks like. In this case, it's a little bit harder to kind of sort out. Um, so I think really what what Deshaun is risking what it comes to um, taking something to trial is just like you know the associated cost of, of paying his, of paying Rusty Harden and, and his law and his legal team uh, that whole time before trial. Um, the cost might go down at some point once discovery ends. Um, but it, I think it would it would benefit him for for his career in order to settle these cases in a more efficient manner. That doesn't Im- impact technically the criminal parts and the criminal investigation, but it could be just, it could be harder if he does reach settlements with all 22 accusers for things to move on, on the criminal front. I think that, I think that is possible for him. Yeah. yeah. If he settles. Yeah. And in, in terms of the, the criminal front, is that, is that, um, is that held back in terms of um, backlog as well? Would that be the, would that be equally as slow if that was to progress as well? You know, cause he could be facing two strands over, Two to three years is that is that like is that a likely outcome if that was to progress? It's a good question. I don't I don't do criminal law, but I I think they probably have some similar issues. Although, you know, because of uh, you know constitutional concerns, like I think that the the criminal courts are always going to get understandably higher priority. I think okay. than, than civil cases, and so I think things could you know move a little bit quicker on that front. It 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 is you know it's been a while. We we first heard about a Houston Police Department investigation in back in April. So that is now seven months ago. And so seven months, we heard about the rumors about grand jury and subpoenas in August. So that's now a couple of months ago. I don't really know what's happening on that front. So that's another hard thing to analyze. But I but kind of, you know, relating all of this, I do agree with your point that the Texans, they don't make a lot of right decisions. They make mostly the wrong ones. But they did make the right decision in not trading Deshaun at the deadline because I think moving forward, there's a much better chance probability wise that there's more clarity on his legal situation moving forward than less. And the quarterback market has a better chance of being opened up in January and February compared to where it was at the deadline, which I think can only help what their leverage might be. Yeah, that's right. And you want a bigger market and you want a bigger, you know, sort of, number of teams kind of at the table and you want to force people's hand because there's it's a rare asset we're selling here um mike very briefly we're doing a pod on this next week but if you you, you i know you're a, you followed college football um if we're sitting top three is there any guys that you, you you think are no question picks right now the the guys i'm looking at who the tech like i think there's a decent chance if you were doing odds in vegas today that one of these guys will be a Houston Texan. Kayvon Thibodeau, Aiden Hutchinson, the defensive end from Michigan, uh, Derek Stingley, the corner from LSU, Kyle Hamilton, the safety from Notre Dame, or Evan Neal, the left tackle from Alabama. Yeah. Uh, those are the guys, like, to me, in, in the top five, you got to be taking premium positions, which is why, you know, Kyle Hamilton seems like, I, when I watch him play, like, that guy's a big-time player, but I, I kind of wonder, like, Hey, are you really going to take a safety, yeah. <laughs> you know, that depending on where it is like that high in the draft, but I'd be focused on pass rusher, offensive lineman, um, cornerback possibly as well. I would say what I, I, I typically look at the mock drafts, you know, about once a week or so those look like the usual suspects that are always up yeah. there. Yeah, no, a lot can change, um, but it'll be good. I think when we get through these games to finally have something positive and something to uh to feel like just having a first round pick and and it's owns a bit of a novelty i suppose so it's yes worth it. absolutely it's worth after it the last couple the, years uh, to, to find some brighter days but as we said it's gonna be a long slow process um but hopefully um another hour this week maybe makes you make a little sense of it if you're listening if you're hanging in there if you've managed to keep watching all four quarters this season but uh mike Meltzer, thank you very much for your time i always appreciate it. great to have you on again um absolutely we'll, we'll do this again sometime no doubt but uh Thanks for your time. Any last words for we share here? I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I, I always enjoy going on with you. Uh, if people have serious XM among your listeners, uh, I'm on there uh, usually a couple times uh, per week. So that is channel 82. Check out my Twitter feed at Mike Meltzer. I almost always uh, put out when I'm on the air on serious XM. All right.
Well, thanks, Mike. If you don't, I'm not checked out. Check it out already. Um, if you're not checked out, any articles will be some, and we'll be gearing up for a bye week podcast. Look at some college prospects next week. But thanks again for listening and uh, check everything out at podcasttexans.com. Give us a like, give us a share if you're watching um, on whatever medium. But uh, thanks again. We'll catch you next week. Bye.